Welcome to this week's energy show. Now, every set of predictions about the solar and storage industry. And this year, my 2022 predictions came into much clearer focus, although I didn't like the picture, after the California Public Utilities Commission dropped a bomb on the California solar and storage industry. Basically, the CPUC sided with PG&E and other utilities to basically eliminate net metering. They come up with numbers for net metering three. We're currently on net metering two. But net metering three is so bad that customers putting in solar or battery storage under this new net metering process are heavily penalized for connecting to the grid. There's a fixed cost. There's a way, way lower reimbursement rate. There's a change in grandfathering. It's really terrible. So they still call it net metering. I don't know why, but really you'd be better off if this actually goes through and you connect after net metering three goes into effect. You'd be better off with a battery and never sending excess power to the grid. So you could still connect to the grid under something called rule 21. Under that rule, you never export. But the the export rate under net metering and the penalty for having solar is so high, you're better off not sending any power at all to the grid, which, quite frankly, is idiotic from the standpoint of California's energy grid. All right. So the California solar and storage industry and a lot of other allies are striving to modify this terribly reasoned CPUC decision. And the decision as of, I'm you know, doing this show at the beginning of February, the decision is now delayed until later in February. The date is still uncertain. And I'm still holding out hope that my predictions about the impact of net metering three turn out to be wrong. In other words, hopefully a new net metering three won't be as hideous as the utilities hope. All right. So that's the background. Here are our predictions. Prediction number one. California's investor-owned utilities will have their very best year ever in 2022. Now, these IOUs, investor-owned utilities, and, you know, you probably owe them also, Pacific Gas and Electric up here in Northern California, Southern California Edison in the LA area, and San Diego Gas and Electric, they're politely referred to as IOUs, but the people use a lot more strong words when they're referring to them. But these utilities are going to book record profits in 2022. Why? Because they've raised rates tremendously. 11% last year, 2021, they've announced a raise, an increase in rates of 9% this year so far. These are PG&E's numbers. And PG&E announced that another rate increase is coming. So we can expect over the last, just over the last two years, your electric bill will go up at least 20%. And what they're doing with these higher rates is, you know, this isn't saving customers any money. All these extra charges basically go to the company profitability and it goes to executive bonuses. I read an article where PG&E had requested $450 million for executive bonuses for PUC execs. They're also, as part of these rate increases, going to commit billions more in rate payer funds. Basically, all the money that PG&E gets comes from people paying their electric bills, businesses paying their electric bills. So they're going to spend billions to fix the transmission and distribution system that they were supposed to be maintaining. So the grid's broken. They're not doing a good job of maintaining it. And to add insult to injury, they've announced a plan to install 10,000 miles of underground power lines, which is kind of a good idea, right? You don't want to have more power lines going through the woods because then trees, you know, grow into the power lines or the power lines get old and they don't maintain it and they cause fires. The cost, believe it or not, for this 10,000 miles of underground power lines over a 10-year time frame is 88 
billion. I did the math really quickly to figure that out, but $88 billion would put solar in storage on every single home in Northern California. So I have to say, with regards to the best year ever that they're going to have in 2022, if it weren't for the fires they've caused, the ways they lies, their flawed business model, and their terrible ethics, I'd suggest buying stock in these utilities. Okay, prediction number two. The net metering three transition will drive record solar installations in Q1 and Q2. We're already seeing this. The current net metering is scheduled to end on May 27th, 2022, and I think it's going to kind of slide until probably the end of June. And as a result, people want to get connected under the current net metering, which is really good. So customers are rushing to install solar, to install a battery system, to expand their systems before net metering two ends. Because once it ends you're stuck with terrible net metering three. Even if it's adjusted, it's going to be worse. So the solar and storage business is very busy now. I've almost never seen it this hectic. Now, when NEM3 goes into effect, which is going to be probably third quarter of this year, third quarter 2022, at the end of 2022, the investment tax credit is going to go from 26 to 22%. So people are really moving fast right now to get the 26% tax credit and to get the net metering two favorable benefits. By the end of the year, they're only going to be hanging on to the 26% tax credit. And then I see in 2023, the biggest solar installation downturn in over 20 years. Now, mostly talking about California, obviously, but California is about half the U.S. market. So California is going to get clobbered. The whole solar industry is going to get clobbered. Now, talking about, you know, the implications, the next steps that are going to happen as a result of the predicted rush that I see for solar installations, that manufacturers are not going to have enough stock to meet the Q1 and Q2 rush in California. Now, we already all know that because of COVID, the supply chains are already stretched. We've got ships backed up in the harbors. We've got shortages of chips all over the world. Parts of Asia, China in particular, you're going into another COVID shutdown and, you know, pretty much not going to be shipping anything out. We're in the middle of the Chinese New Year right now, so they're not going to ramp up again, you know, for another month or so. So the critical solar and storage components are already in very short supply. I mean, just like auto parts are in short supply and computer chips are in short supply. So what we're seeing now is solar equipment, inverters, solar panels, batteries, prices are already up 10% across the board based on what's happened in the past. And I kind of suspect that when a shortage hits in mid to late Q2, it's going to, the prices are going to go up even more. Inventory is going to be really tight. And the other thing that's going to happen is not only do the manufacturers and the distributors increase prices, which I understand, they're also going to ration the shipments. They're not going to have enough product for all of their customers. And they're going to basically say, you're good customers. We'll try and get what you need, but we're not going to get you everything. And then there's going to be other customers that might not be as good. Maybe they're not paying their bills on time. They're not going to get anything. So I think as a result of this rationing, prices are going to go up even more than expected in the first half of 2022. Second half of 2022, all bets are off. Who knows? But I think there's still going to be shortages. All right. Prediction number four. New battery system suppliers will have a tendency to focus more on technology than on customer needs. Now, I see more and more battery storage companies releasing products. That's a great thing. But many of these companies fail to heed the basic customer requirements. They kind of don't understand what what people want when you're sitting at their dining room table saying, you know, hey, this is what we want for backup power. They miss the market. They miss key needs in the market and that derails their sales ramp. So based on sales and my experience with existing battery systems using equipment from Tesla and SolarEdge and LG and Enphase and Generac, and you know, these are the big ones. 
customers demand backup power, obviously, because they got a battery. But they want the backup power all the time, not just when the sun is shining. Actually, I find it kind of silly that companies are promoting the capability to have your inverter operate during the day. You know, I can kind of live without lights during the day, but I need lights at night. So without a battery, a solar system will not keep the lights on at night when we need the lights. Duh. So they're making this mistake, and I see it happen again and again. Now, the other challenge that these battery companies have is that they don't understand that a key part of these systems is software, firmware. You need that to ramp up sales. You need software to configure the systems easily. You need software to administer fleets of systems. And we got like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of customers with these battery systems. They all need to be administered. We need to take care of those customers. And the customers also need a cell phone app that's easy to use, that has all the capabilities. And so software is, it's not just one piece of software. It's a lot of software. It's a lot of integration. There's a lot of security involved. It's not easy to do. And it's not something that a small company can just kind of, you know, have a couple of smart coders do. All right. The other thing is the customers want their backup power systems. And this is what some companies miss is they want those backup power systems to seamlessly integrate with their existing solar system, not just two completely independent systems. That's not easy, but it kind of comes back to the point of companies are putting out systems that only provide daytime backup power where they have backup systems that can't be recharged from the battery. And this is a reflection of the fact that some of these systems out there only have backup power during the day, or they can't recharge the battery during the day from solar. That's really, really important. Obviously, if you have solar and a battery backup, the solar has to be able to charge the battery. Unless there's a blackout, you deplete the battery at night, sun comes up in the next morning, you want to be able to charge that battery up. It's not that easy. Some companies are just missing it because it's a tricky from a technical standpoint. Now let's talk about solar panel manufacturing, particularly U.S. solar panel manufacturing. And this is one of those things where I wish it weren't the case, but the reality is that a lot of the larger Asian companies make better solar panels. All right, you heard me say it. I'm not criticizing the U.S. I'm just telling you what the facts are. Now, and here's the reasons. The labor rates in the United States are higher in many other places of the world, particularly in Asia. And then the components that go into these solar panels are usually manufactured in Asia. The solar cells are coming from Asia. The back sheets are coming from Asia. The junction boxes are coming from Asia. The cheapest frame extrusions come from Asia. And they're all really good. It's not like the, the quality of those components isn't that good. So because U.S. labor rates are higher and component costs are higher, the cost of a module assembled in the U.S. is always going to be greater than in most overseas factories. And, you know, just putting aside, it's not realistic to expect that within even five years, you'd be able to have that supply chain all coming back to the U.S. And even if that supply chain of junction boxes and solar cells and things like that in the U.S. were to come back, it'd still be higher. All right. So the costs here are higher. And every solar panel has a 25-year warranty requirement. I don't know where they came up with this number. You know, somebody pounded their chest 20 years ago and said, our solar panel is going to last for 25 years. But the good news is the panels that I've been installing, I mean, I've got 20 years of experience doing this, they're still working from the companies that had a high-quality manufacturing process. So really, to meet that 25-year warranty requirement, you need to have a company that has really good components to make the panels and really does a very careful job of manufacturing in a way that doesn't result in failures. Skimping on quality to achieve more competitive price points is a short-term strategy. It gets you to the market at a lower price, 
but in my experience, it often results in epidemic product failures. An epidemic is when you get a high percentage of the panels, for whatever reason, failing. A high percentage is like 0.1%. And we're seeing companies that, that are exceeding that. There's some companies that are, you know, 25 or 30%. They're out of business now. But the homeowners and the businesses that had those solar panels really suffer when those companies go bankrupt. So I've got a lot of experience with U.S. and overseas solar panel manufacturing. And I have a lot of experience with these companies that either disappear and not meet their warranty obligations or just ducking the customer service obligation. I'm not going to go into the company names, but in my experience, almost all of the smaller U.S. manufacturers have had poor quality and for all intents and purposes, non-existent customer service. And a lot of these companies have just disappeared. On the flip side, the deep-pocketed global module companies with well-known brands. I mean, I'll give you some examples. LG, manufacturers in the U.S. Panasonic, used to manufacture in the U.S. Jinko, manufacturers in the U.S. These big companies, they have well-known brands. They have a good supply chain. They know how this thing works. They automate everything. And they can spend the extra money because they have a good brand to make sure that they put the quality into the modules. And the quality of the modules, I'll just give an example that we've been getting from LG, has been absolutely just as good as the quality that we were getting those modules when they were manufactured in South Korea. So the way I'm looking at it is if somebody's going to open up a manufacturing plant in the U.S., if it were LG or if it were Sharp, Sharp had a great manufacturing plant here. Kyocera did a great job of manufacturing. Both of those Japanese companies got out of the business in the U.S. But you want to pick a company that has a, a good brand because they don't want their retail brand, their consumer brand, be smirched by lousy quality on their solar panels. Now, I mean, I can think of an example like BP Solar that really didn't give a hoot about it, and they, you know, their brand isn't that great among solar customers anyway, but you know, there's a lot of problems there, and there was a fight to get them fixed. Okay, prediction number six. Poor data communications technology is a problem for battery systems. Now, this has just been a challenge because our, our communications infrastructure, you think it's going to be pretty good, but when you need really, really reliable 99.99% good internet communications, you don't have a lot of options. So, and unlike ordinary rooftop solar systems, where you basically just had to report every 15 minutes or every hour on how much energy was being produced and maybe the power, those ordinary rooftop systems didn't really demand very reliable high bandwidth communications. However, for battery systems, those communications are required. And also, as we start talking about virtual power plants or the ability to control other appliances in your house or automatically shed loads under certain circumstances or using a cell phone app to change the parameters, you need really good communications. And any weak link from the battery to the inverter up to the cloud and back to the customer's cell phone is going to limit customer satisfaction and increase support costs. So this is a really, really important thing. Now, it sounds Stone Age, but over the last five years, six years, our most reliable systems that we've been installing have used hardwire Ethernet communications. As I said, it's like something that Fred Flintstone would use in his house. But we run those hardwires from the home's Internet connection. Sometimes we have a, an extender, so it's a little bit wireless inside, but outside it's all hardwired, goes right into the inverter, or it goes right into the battery, and you know what? It works, and we're having by far more reliability with those systems. Okay, number seven, prediction number seven. 
Shortages of battery installers and technicians will slow down deployments. Now, it's one thing to kind of sell the system. It's another thing to install it and get it to work perfectly. And I see that there's still going to be a shortage of equipment, but there's going to be even a bigger shortage of trained battery system electricians that can install and wire these things up and technicians that can kind of get everything working perfectly. That's going to delay the widespread rollout of home and business energy storage systems. It's really hard to find these electricians and technicians who not only understand the battery systems and solar, but also understand computers and have some computer expertise. And the reason is that these energy storage systems require much more electrical wiring to provide backup power. But beyond that, they require a lot of on-site data communications wiring and troubleshooting skills and configuration requirements in order to make everything work properly and control from a cell phone app. So it's non-trivial and the, the battery shortage is bad, but even if you have plenty of batteries, if you don't have qualified people to put it in, you're going to put in a lot of broken systems, and we don't want that. Okay. Prediction number eight. Small or unknown battery system manufacturers are not going to gain market traction. Now, I get just as, as many daily emails from small and, you know, I never heard of them before, lithium-ion battery suppliers, as I do from companies that are offering me solar leads. Now, unfortunately, these small suppliers don't have the quality reputation that's required. They don't have the strong balance sheet. I mean, you know, we're talking about billions and billions of dollars to be able to afford the warranty obligation, the quality, and the manufacturing skill. They just don't have the money, and they don't have the systems expertise to meet the needs of customers who demand an integrated system that's going to work perfectly with all the software and the app works. All the testing has been done per UL and other jurisdictions. And, and that, that they can actually demonstrate the ability to deliver a 10-year system guarantee. So, you know, when we kind of look at new battery suppliers, I'd love to see more of them, but i really like to see more big companies get into the market or more big companies buy these little companies, kind of like Generac did with Pica, so that they can have both the technology that's required and also the warranty and the brand name that's going to back things up. Okay, prediction number nine. Smart load control systems will become standard equipment. What am I talking about here? What's a load control system? Well, let me just give you some background about why it's important. The typical home in the U.S. uses 30 kilowatt hours of energy per day. The peak power demands, in other words, the number of watts some of these houses use, sometimes exceeds 25 kilowatts. Maybe not for long, maybe only for like a minute or two. But, um, you know, you're, you're going to hit close to 20 or 25 kilowatts if you're charging your EV while you're cooking on your electric stove or oven on a hot summer day. You're charging your AV, you got a, a lot of electricity going into cooking, and you got your air conditioning running. The typical 10 kilowatt hour battery connected to a standard 7.6 kilowatt inverter can't meet these energy requirements of 30 kilowatt hours in the day, and they can't meet the power requirements of at least 25 kilowatts. The only way around this is to route all the circuits into what's called an essential load panel, which is pretty much standard with what we're doing, or by installing a really, really big system, a lot of inverters and a lot of batteries, that's a lot of money. So most customers don't want to do that. But the more affordable way to do it to provide this reliable backup power when you need it is by automatically shedding loads during a blackout. 
So that's where smart load control systems come in. Now, these systems can operate either for a few circuits or every single circuit in the house. I kind of tend towards moving towards every circuit in the house, you know, just the largest circuits, uh, like what you're talking about. We want to be able to automatically disconnect the air conditioning and the cooking and the EV charging and the pool pumps because that's what's going to draw the most power during a blackout. Other times, just let it run. And in our experience, this is really important to ensure a good customer experience during extended blackouts. Because the last thing you want to do, the last thing a customer wants is a really nice 10 kilowatt hour system with a 7.6 kilowatt battery, very standard. And then what happens is when there's a blackout, because all their other appliances are running, the battery only lasts for 15 minutes. Or the battery even can't manage to operate both the EV charger and the oven. And that could happen unless the system is designed properly with an essential load panel or load shedding. Okay, last prediction, prediction number 10. PV module power capacities are going to keep increasing until the modules get too big and bulky to carry up a ladder. Now, I kind of look back over the last 20 years and efficiencies of the solar cells and the solar panels as a whole, they've gone up. Actually, quite a bit. I think back to 2001, the average efficiency was 13% or 14%. And now the average efficiency of the module is 19%. But that's kind of only a 25% increase in module output. When I started in 2001 here, we were putting in modules with 120 watts. Now we're routinely putting in modules that are over 400 watts. Most of the increase in the solar cell efficiency from 14% cell to 19% came from better crystalline cells, from blue polycrystalline cells back in 2001, and now we have black monocrystalline perk back contact cells, much more efficient. So there's, that's where you get the cell efficiency improvement. But the biggest increase in power output of the solar module, the solar panel, comes from just making the freaking modules a lot bigger. Current modules we're putting in are like three times the area of the little 120-watt modules that we used to put in. And that's how we're achieving those bigger outputs. The standard for residential historically has been a 60-cell module. Now the standard's moving towards a 66-cell module. Everything got about six and a quarter inches bigger. It kind of doesn't sound like a lot, but it's 10% bigger, and it's a little bulkier to carry up a ladder. The good thing about higher wattage modules is they require less power electronics, so you need smaller optimizers or, or fewer optimizers, fewer microinverters, less packaging per size of system, and fewer racking components for the size of the system. However, these bigger modules are much more difficult to carry up a roof. They're more dangerous. I won't even try to carry one of these things up on my shoulder while holding onto the ladder or handing them up. It's gotten a lot tougher. The other challenge with bigger modules is you have reduced coverage on the roof because if you have bigger, what I, I call it the tiling problem. If the modules are a lot bigger, you can fit fewer of them in the available area on the roof. Whereas if you have a lot of small modules, great. I mean, Tesla has tiles. That's great. But it's really difficult to wire those things up. So there's kind of a good compromise and 60 cells been okay. 66 looks like it's the standard right now. But we're moving towards modules that are bigger and bigger. And there's just a limit to where the installers are going to say, hey, you know, we're not buying as many of those big modules because it's not safe and we can't get as many panels on the roof. All right. So those are my 10 predictions. To wrap up conclusion here, our industry can't do anything about COVID and about other unforeseen black swan events. Nevertheless, we have to be prepared for continuing and in fact accelerating attacks by fossil fuel companies and incumbent utilities. They're coming after the solar industry. They're coming after the battery industry in just as big a way. 
So these big companies, these utilities, these incumbent fossil fuel companies, they're intent on limiting the deployments of behind-the-meter solar and storage. They don't want businesses to put this stuff in. They don't want homeowners to put in solar and batteries because it reduces their profits and it reduces their revenue. It's the simplest thing. It's blatantly obvious. I mean, you know, if you're running a business, how would you like it if your customers are able to get your product, in this case electricity, for less money faster and cleaner if they were to put it in themselves? That's what's happening. So California, with the net metering three battle, is really the current place where this war is being fought. Florida is going to be next, and this has happened in other states. And the evidence is clear. When these bad net metering decisions go through, they're bad for the industry until they're overturned in a year or two. All right, so what do we do about it? The best thing you can do, whether you're a customer or within the solar industry, is really work closely with your industry advocacy groups like SIA, like the California Solar and Storage Association, CALSA, like Vote Solar. The way that CALSA has been working in conjunction with the Solar Rights Alliance, particularly on the grassroots level, you're getting million people in the solar industry in California, California. We got over 120,000 people writing emails and letters to Governor Newsom, like, don't change net metering the way you're going to change it because you're going to kill the industry. But not only are you going to kill the industry, that's kind of internal thing. You're going to make electricity more expensive and less affordable for everyone. So I see the future of a lot of this advocacy is happening not you know, necessarily within the big national group, but coordinated by groups like the Solar Rights Alliance. And it's not too late to contribute to these efforts. There's lots of emails. You feel free to go to our website. You can get links to the Solar Rights Alliance and you can get links to CALSA. You can send a letter or email to Governor Newsom and the California Public Utilities Commission to do the best we can as an industry for the benefit of all Californians and you know, ultimately the whole country to have cleaner, more affordable, economically beneficial, environmentally beneficial electricity. Okay. That's all the time we have on this week's energy show. Thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. And if you missed any of today's show, you can always go to our website at cinnamon.energy and listen to the podcasts.